everyone. Hi, hello. It is me, Allison Rosen. Welcome to another episode of Allison Rosen is your new best friend. I'm here with Karina Longworth, host of the critically acclaimed and incredibly well done podcast. You must remember this. Also, journalist. Uh, do you still call yourself a film critic? No. Okay. Former <laughs> film critic uh, and someone who has a really interesting story. Hello and welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. So I, as someone who has done a podcast for a long time that's recorded live, um, I've recently become really fascinated with people who do podcasts like yours, which where the production value is there's so is so high. Oh, thank Jeff, you. That is not an insult to you because the production <laughs> value of this is high. But what I mean is it's just a completely different animal than a podcast like this, which is like we're having a conversation, there are jingles, and then we put it up there. Yeah. Um so can you talk a bit about your process? Yeah. I mean my initial idea was that it was going to be This American Life Meets Hollywood Babylon. Um, and then, it, I mean, that would it that would sort of imply that, like, I would be like Ira Glass and there'd be, like, other people telling stories, which mm. never happened. <laughs> Maybe it'll happen in the future. But um, basically what it is is I, I figure out what, you know, a season is going to be about. A season is usually 6 to 12 to 15 episodes. And then I do research for, like, three months. Um, and I just read everything I can and watch as many movies as I can. And then I, I write these scripts, which are basically long essays with, um, you know, notes about where to include movie clips. And if I want to have an actor play a voice or something like that, they're usually between like 4,500 to 6,000 or yeah, 4,500 to 6,000 words. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I have like a little recording booth in my home office and I record my part. And then I have this relationship with Panoply, which distributes the podcast and sells ads and everything. And they Are pro- they part of Slate? Yeah. Yeah. And they provide an editor for me. So I send my audio, like the stuff I record, the stuff I have actors record, all the movie clips to them, and then they put it together. Mm. The first 50 episodes I edited myself, but that was a nightmare. <laughs> I was going to say, what's? are you a control freak? Not really. Um, in fact, like, over time, I feel like I've become less of a perfectionist about the mm-hmm. podcast. Um, but I just I started it completely by myself with no money. Um, and I felt like I had to show people what I meant. Like I had to create it myself in order to show people what I wanted it to sound like and like what I wanted it to be. Concept. Yeah. And so that's that's just what it was for like the first dozen episodes. And then by then people were really listening to it and and so I was able to start having conversations with podcast networks. And my dream scenario was to stop being able to edit. And then I got it. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I was going to ask, is that weird letting someone else do it? But it sounds like it's not weird at all. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm i probably a little, I don't know exactly what the word is. I'm probably a little too direct with my editors where I'm, I'm, I'm like, no, I don't like the way you did this. Like, you must do this differently. <laughs> like, I'm not afraid to give them notes. Um, so I'm able to get it, get the show to sound exactly the way I want it to, even though I'm not doing it. That is so inspiring for me personally. <laughs> this is one of those things that's like me personally needing to do that. Cause I would be like, have you thought of like maybe doing it this, I wouldn't even say maybe doing it. I'd be like, what do you think of the idea of if it was like, I would, I would write like four paragraphs where the person <laughs> would read it and be like, I'm not sure what she's asking i wish i could be more i never you learned, don't you don't I never <laughs> i never learned those human skills 
of like you have to make people feel good about their work and like happy to be working with you and like encouraging. Um, my father was like somebody who was a manager of people, but he was always extremely direct and mm-hmm. was just like, no, this isn't good enough. Like we need to do it a different way. Or why did you do it this way when I told you to do it this other way? Was and he so, like that with you? Oh, yeah. <laughs> What'd your Absolutely. dad do? He was a, like a corporate accountant. Mm-hmm. So what was your childhood like? Um, I grew up here in LA and uh, my dad kind of wasn't around like a lot of dads until my mom died when I was 11 and then he had to be around mm-hmm. and he was around all the time. So what happened to your mom? She just, uh, it was basically depression. Yeah. Mm. Um, obviously that must have been incredibly hard <laughs> at 11 to lose your mom and then suddenly have your dad who previously hadn't been a big part of your life yeah. all the time. Um, how do you feel like that's affected you? I mean, I think that I, it was, I don't know what it would have been like to be a teenager with a mom around, you know, I think in some ways it would have been easier and helpful and I, it definitely would have been better, I think, to have two different influences, parental Mm -hmm. influences, but, um, I don't remember my mother very much at all and the things I do remember are pretty negative. Um, and my father, it's- Just, um, you know, she had mental health issues and was sometimes really loving and then sometimes not able to be that way. Mm. Um, And, you know, the time that, you know, basically the seven or eight years I lived at home with my dad, um, he was somebody who was he's British and um, not extremely emotional and very direct. um, But he really did completely change his life to take care of me and my sister. And I have nothing but admiration for that. Mm-hmm. What I know at 11, it's probably hard to assess the assess this, but was he wrecked by losing your mom? Well, I, I think a big part of his life died. Yeah. I mean, he, as far as my sister and I know, he never dated. So he, he died last year. So he was like, from 1991 to 2016, as far as we know, there was like no romance or mm-hmm. sex in his life at all. Wow. Inle- unless it was completely secret. Right. Do you think your upbringing um, informs what stories you're drawn to? Probably. Um, I, I haven't really analyzed how. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I mean, I think I was a lonely kid and um, I have always been like kind of somebody who spends a lot of time alone. And I think that I emphasize with, with that, with loneliness and loss. Mm-hmm. Do you battle depression? I am, don't think I battle clinical depression, but I'm moody. So going back to you being super direct okay. and me <laughs> thinking and me wishing I could be more of that, unless I'm that person who's actually very direct and, and abrasive in real life. And everyone's like, no, you don't need to be more of that. You know, there's always those people who do not see themselves clearly at all. Um, a story that I read about you, I think it was in, I think I learned of it in the long reads interview with you was how you got your LA weekly job. Mm-hmm. Um, can you tell me that? Yeah. Um, I, so I had been living in New York. I had gone to graduate school there at NYU and then I had stuck around and I was, 
freelancing and I'd had kind of a long-term job writing a, a blog for a website called Spout that doesn't exist anymore that was trying to be a social network for movie fans. It was sort of ahead of its time, I think. Um, but they decided to shut down in the fall of 2009 and I was looking for work. And about two weeks after I was told I was going to be laid off, I found out that Scott Foundas, who had been the film editor at the LA Weekly, was leaving that job. And so it just felt like that was my job mm-hmm. and I needed to get it. Because I grew up in L.A. reading the L.A. Weekly. It was super important to me as a publication. I mean, I don't think people younger than me maybe even understand what alt-weeklies were. But when I was 12 years old, I would go to the Froyo place (laughs) and pick up the L.A. Weekly. And that's how I learned about rock and roll and, like, you know, non-mainstream movies. And it was where I learned, like, where to shop for Doc Martens. (laughs) You know, it was just super, super important to me in the 90s and really shaped my point of view um, about culture and about the city of LA and, um, you know, New, New York in 2009, like after the financial crisis was not an easy place to live and I was ready for a change. And so I, I decided I had to go and get that job. And I just like sent in my resume a bunch of times. I applied to like the Craigslist listing a bunch of times. I emailed all these people and I wasn't getting a call back. And so Were your emails going unanswered? Yeah, just completely unanswered. Um, but somehow I like wouldn't accept that. <laughs> and my dad still but lives. That's the thing I love. It's <laughs> like there's been an error because oftentimes yeah. there has been. Well, the, actually, it turned out there had been. Um, I don't think this is true. But when I actually did have an interview, they told me that my phone number wasn't on my resume. And I think that maybe it just like was formatted weird and didn't come through on the email. Mm-hmm. But Anyway, maybe my phone number wasn't on my resume and like I was that stupid. <laughs> Although, if they're like, we received this resume via email and there's no phone number, I don't know yeah. how to reach her, then come on. <laughs> yeah. Well, actually, the editor of the LA Weekly at that time was a real old school guy. So maybe. Um, and the internet was different in 2009, but yeah, he should have emailed. <laughs> anyway, my dad still lived in Studio City where I grew up. And so I was like, I'm going to come visit for two weeks. And then during that time, like I basically spent the first week you know, trying to like calling the LA Weekly and like trying to get an interview. And I finally got an interview the second to last day I was in town. um, And then they offered me the job. That's I love that. (laughs) So were you nervous at all calling them up? No, I felt desperate. Um, In New York, I really felt like I wasn't going to get a job there. There was too many people my age, like fighting for the same jobs. And it really felt like there was a ceiling um, where at that time, the internet was considered way below print media. And there it felt like there was no going from one thing to the other. You know, I, I always would have preferred to work in a magazine or a newspaper, but those jobs weren't available to me. You know, even though I had a graduate degree in cinema studies, when I was trying to get those jobs in like 2005, 2006, 2007, they just there was it was not going to happen because mm-hmm. I, I didn't have any connections in that world and there was just no way to get in. So I just felt like, I mean, my whole twenties, I just felt like I had to create my own opportunities. And then when there was an actual opportunity that I wanted, I you know just wasn't going to take no for an answer. Is that how you are generally? I think that when I really want something, I don't, I don't feel like there's a reason why I shouldn't have it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um. Yeah, I found in job searches the times where, because I lived in New York in mm-hmm. from 2002 to 2010. That's about and, the same as me. And I worked in magazines. Mm-hmm. 
And at the beginning, like, were you looking at Media Bistro to find yeah, your... Totally. Yeah, Like, at the beginning, I was applying for jobs that were completely not what I... Like, I didn't get hired. I did. I don't even think I got an interview, which is good because it wasn't my experience. Like, the copywriting yeah. and, you know, stuff where it would say, you know, write display copy. And, like, I just thought of window displays. I didn't realize that that means headlines. And so mm. I didn't even yeah. know what that meant. Um, but then the times that I did get hired, it's because it was a job that required the exact experience I had. Mm. And so then I did have that confidence. Um, okay, so because of my background, I worked at Time Out New York, and I, before that I worked at OC Weekly here, I am fascinated by the magazine weekly part or the alt-weekly part of your mm. your story. Um, you said that you had not a, a nervous breakdown, but like a stress <laughs> meltdown in yeah. 2002. 12 yeah so what happened so i was the film editor for the la weekly and i was also a critic i was basically the behind jim hoverman um at the village voice i was the lead critic and then they fired him and so i was the only critic for a while i mean there were freelancers but i was expected to do um expected to do big reviews every week and i was also kind of expected in the social media sphere to see everything mm-hmm. and have an opinion about everything oh right cuz i remember at oc weekly we didn't have film reviewers we got them mm. from la yeah so were yeah. your you you were writing stuff for all the publications all the papers yeah. yeah so it was then it was called village voice media i don't know what the situation is now um right. But the it was the main papers were the Village Voice and the LA Weekly, and then there was also the SF Weekly and the OC Weekly, and then papers in Dallas mm-hmm. and Arizona and all these other places. City pages, yeah, yeah. So uh, my reviews would get syndicated to all these papers, you know, and and so the the more regional papers they wanted reviews of the Marvel movies, but New York and LA, like we felt, um, you know a responsibility to cover the smaller movies that were playing only in our markets. In LA, there's a great repertory film scene as there is in New York. And that was the stuff I was more interested in. So I was just, it wasn't even so much that like I was being pushed to do every, all of this stuff by anybody that I worked for. It was that I felt a responsibility to do things that weren't in, I felt a responsibility to do types of coverage in addition to the stuff that I was being mandated to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and go to film festivals, see everything at film festivals, um, you know, and then also participate in social media a lot, not just to promote my work, but to have this public persona. And I think ultimately the public persona thing is what wore on me the most, um, because, you know, just the, the comments that would, I would get on my reviews were, you know, really (laughs) usually very insulting and, um, misogynistic and um, especially when it came to things like superhero movies which I was told weren't for me and that I didn't understand mm. and that I wasn't allowed to critique as you know works of supposed art um, what were you supposed to how were you supposed to view them just as well, genre I was supposed to be films? a fan uh, and if I wasn't a fan I was supposed to you know shut up um, but it was and were these fans online saying this or did you get pushback from official people? oh no not f- from anybody i worked for it was just um yeah just fans just mm-hmm. commenters you know i mean the, the, oh, i wondered if you got pushback from publicists or studios or anything like that no i had bad relationships with publicists though because it was just a really tricky thing being both an editor of a section and a critic mm-hmm. um because you as the editor like you need access and as the critic you need to be honest 
And so the the I think I'm a good editor of other people's writing, but the part of being a film editor where you have to barter with publicists, where you have to play nice, where you have to like go out to drinks and pretend you care about like their <laughs> next 10 movies is not me. But it's just not something I'm good at. Are you not a small talk person? No. <laughs> I mean, I told you my mom died like three minutes after we started talking. So, <laughs> well, that's I that's the speed I prefer. <laughs> Like real, but uh, but I think so many of us have this fantasy that like if we were better at small talk, things would be so different in this town. Yeah, I don't know if that's true or not. I think that a lot of yeah, just like making connections in Los Angeles more than New York because in New York everyone's busy and nobody has a lot of time, but in Los Angeles a lot I think a lot of professional stuff you have to like you have to go to the drink and like you have to go to the coffee and you have to like remember things about people's personal lives, even though they're not your friends and mm-hmm. stuff like that. So 2012 stress meltdown, you decided not you, you left the LA weekly. Yeah. Um, so what happened? Uh, what happened to make me leave or? Yeah. Well, what, so you were saying that like the, the thing really that became very hard was handling the public persona well yeah i just felt like i was working i i actually like counted how many hours i worked in a week and it was something like 65 and i felt like i was working so hard and then the response i was getting was almost entirely negative and Mm -hmm. just online yeah and just you know i mean even like people posting photos of me and like having arguments about whether or not i was fat Mm -hmm. and like i was fatter than i am now because i was really unhealthy because i was working so hard um and i just felt physically bad and mentally bad and i just didn't want to do it anymore and my boyfriend who was my boyfriend then and is still my boyfriend was very supportive and he was like if you need to you know borrow money i'll help you out um and then i got an offer to do a commissioned book about meryl streep and i was like okay well i this is this is a sort of excuse to leave like mm-hmm. i'll just concentrate on writing this book and then i'll be a freelancer and i'll see what happens did you regret it ever no and did you also write for Time Out New York? Yeah, very early on, like when I was in living in New York, freelancing. Mm-hmm. What did you write? I just wrote film reviews. Like it would, they would send me to re- review things that nobody wanted to review, like the Alvin and the Chipmunks movie and stuff like that. <laughs> uh, and now, again, interesting, specifically to me. <laughs> do you remember who your editor was? Uh, was it Melissa? I th- no, it was. I want to say it was David Fear. It probably was David Fear. That's funny. That was that was the time. Well, no. No, I guess he was the editor after I left, but he was in the film. It was him, uh, Josh Rothkoff, mm-hmm. and Melissa Anderson. Okay. I think they were the film section when I was there. Yeah, there was someone. You know what? Not important, except <laughs> except to me. I feel like I'm forgetting some period of it. Um, but anyway, okay. So just to trace the story again. So grew up in L.A. Mm-hmm. and then where did you go to college? I went to the School of the Art Institute of Chicago, and then I transferred to the San Francisco Art Institute. And then after you graduated from San Francisco, did you go to New York then? Yeah, I basically I, I graduated in 2003, and I applied to a bunch of grad schools, and I ended up going to NYU because um, they gave me, you know, like a financial deal. And I actually came back to LA in between undergrad and grad school. I wasn't sure if I was going to accept the offer from NYU. And I tried to get jobs. Like all I really wanted to do was I had, the one skill I had really learned in art school was video editing. Mm-hmm. And all I really wanted to do was go work for the E-Network and do like E-True Hollywood stories. Interesting. Um, 
Did you like each True Hollywood stories? I loved them. I actually was having a conversation with somebody like the other day where they were like, oh, your podcast. So you're basically ripping off Mysteries and Scandals, right? <laughs> Do you remember Mysteries and Scandals? Only vaguely. So it was like kind of a satellite of E! True Hollywood Stories hosted by this guy, AJ Benza. who was I a- know. <laughs> yes, I know who that is. Yeah. So he was like, he would, they would shoot these like, you know, intros and like interstitials of the doc- talking head documentary about, you know, the Black Dahlia or whatever of him in black and white, like in an alley with like smoke and stuff. And he'd be wearing a fedora and making like puns. <laughs> and I mean, I my podcast is totally secretly a ripoff of Mysteries and Scandals. It's weird that they don't do True Hollywood Story anymore. I, I was a commentator on a few True Hollywood really? stories. Yeah. And I can't remember who who they are. And I know I spoke about uh, the Middletons. I don't know if that was a True Hollywood Story or just like True Hollywood Story presents, you know, right. Pippa and Kate Middleton. Right. Um, yeah. I can't remember who the other ones were. But okay, so went to New York, grad school. Did you want to become a professor? I didn't know. Um, I just kind of needed to do something. And it was just this situation where like, obviously, I was borrowing money from the government. So it wasn't free. But it felt like grad school was free. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just felt like I had to do something. And so I went to New York. Um, I studied old Hollywood for two years while also selling cheese at Dean and DeLuca. <laughs> And it's, it's the Felicity dream. Yeah. <laughs> um, what was your what was the program you were in? The cinema studies master's program. OK. And so I could have continued on and gotten a Ph.D. But by the time I finished the program in two years, I was already like writing online and and getting work as a writer. So I kind of fell into doing film criticism because I was able to get that work. What's your what was your initial career ambition? Like when you were young. Before I went to college. Mm -hmm. I don't think that I really had a specific ambition. I loved movies and I loved art. And I knew that I wanted to do something involving getting people excited about those things. And I didn't know if it was making stuff or writing about stuff or what it was. But I also really loved magazines. I mean, I I was a subscriber to Entertainment Weekly from the age of 12. Um, I loved Spin Magazine. Like I, my writing is probably more influenced by Spin Magazine in the '90s than anything else. I loved Spin. Yeah. Do you remember a writer named I think it was Mark Blackwell? It sounds familiar. He was so funny. And then I think he went. I want to say he went on to like Ray Gun or Bikini. Mm. And I don't know what I he's loved doing Ray now. Gun. Yeah. Um, okay. So you wanted to get people excited about movies and art. Do you think becoming a critic was a natural extension or at the beginning, were you more of a fan? Like, Mm. did you always look at things critically? I think I really learned how to in art school. That's the thing that was really valuable to me in art school um, was learning how to not just say, you know, make a, a judgment based on your preferences, but make a judgment analyzing form and history um and like really trying to figure out where the artist is coming from Mm -hmm. i wrote about music on and off for a long time um and was more of a person who wrote profiles Mm -hmm. and things like and features and things like that but i did do some actual music criticism and i would find that some when people found out they would be very hesitant to tell me what kind of music they liked for fear that i was going to judge them even though Mm -hmm. i never was going to judge them do you have that with people in your life and movies or did you? Um, 
I think when I was in my 20s in New York, there weren't that many women doing what I was doing. And I like the culture was really dominated by dudes, like the sort of cinephile version of record store dudes. Mm -hmm. And like you definitely I definitely felt pressure to impress them by like being into foreign films, being into obscure documentaries. And it's not that I didn't like that stuff, but like I worked really hard to seek out obscure stuff and to know about it. Mm -hmm. Do you have guilty pleasure movies? Oh, yeah. I mean, like I love Pretty Woman. Like, I, if I'm having, like, a really hard time, I put on, like, Pretty Woman or Clueless, you know? <laughs> oh, the payoff to that question was, <laughs> was more than I could have hoped for. I mean, I, like, I, I think in graduate school, like, I thought that I, what I was going to do was, like, write academic stuff defending that kind of movie, like, mm-hmm. defending, basically, women's movies. And then I just, like, really, like, got deep into old Hollywood instead. What is it that attracts you to old Hollywood? I think that growing up in L.A. in the 80s, it just felt so normal to be into that stuff that I've never really been able to figure out where the interest comes from. But um, like on the evening news, they would talk about what Elizabeth Taylor did that day, you know, and the like one of the very first memories I have is of my mom explaining to me like who Rock Hudson was and what AIDS was. Wow. Um, So it just... It just felt like something that was so a, a part of the fabric of my life. And I didn't realize that it wasn't part of other people's lives until I moved to Chicago when I was 18. Mm-hmm. Okay. I want to ask you if your parents were into movies in old Hollywood. But first, I need to talk about Icon Undies. One in three women pee a little when they laugh, cough, run, or double bounce like a boss on a trampoline, especially especially after you've had a kid. It. I was just thinking about this both this morning and yesterday when I coughed and boy, coughing more than anything, just blasts a few drops out of there. And also I've mentioned before that uh, the time between when I am aware I need to pee and when I'm like, "Uh uh-oh, is so short. It's really out of control. I don't understand if I'm, if I'm becoming aware later. I don't think it's that. I think it's just the, the control just isn't, there and it makes me wish sometimes that I had a C-section. But here's the thing: Icon Undies are here to help keep you dry with pee-proof underwear. These are from the same women who brought you Thinks period underwear. You can ditch your disposable panty liners because each pair of Icon holds up to eight teaspoons, and they're also antimicrobial, anti-odor, and they're not gross at all. They're pretty fashionable. Uh, try Icon Undies for 30 days risk-free. Use code BFF at IconUndies.com. So again, that's code BFF at Icon undies.com for $10 off your order. Okay. Yes. So uh, was your family interested in the arts? Yeah. And again, like I didn't know it was weird. Um, But yeah, I remember like my when we first got our first VCR and my parents would like rent movies, they would rent stuff like Fanny and Alexander. And so I just thought that everybody's parents were into Fanny and Alexander. I think the first thing I ever watched on a VCR was Charlie Brown and Ferdinand the Bull. So similar upbringing. (laughs) Um, So where did the initial idea for You Must Remember This come from? Well, I was it was the spring of 2014 and I was um, doing some adjunct teaching and where at Chapman University. And I was a really bad fit for the class that I was teaching and um, just really didn't like it at all. Was it film studies? (laughs) It was so in their graduate production program, they require that the students take 
exactly one class where they watch movies and write about them and talk about them. And that was the class I was teaching. And the students, it was a big lecture class. The students didn't want to be there. Um, They weren't interested in analyzing movies. And also I was showing them, um, basically the the point of the class was to talk about like trends in contemporary cinema. So I was showing them like film festival movies. Um, And it it was just, they they all want to just work on special effects. Like that's Mm -hmm. the reason they go to that school because they get great training in it. And so they weren't interested. They didn't want to engage with me. I didn't know how to get them to engage. Um, At least a third of the class were native Chinese speakers I was had no training in teaching non-native English speakers. So I was really bad at it and I was really unhappy. Um, and I just kind of, I realized, I was trying to figure out what it is that I did want to do mm-hmm. um, and trying to visualize, you know, what are the opportunities for me and like, what could I go and do? Did you feel like, wait, sorry, what year was this? You said 2014. 2014. Um, had you given up on the idea of trying to get a staff writing job somewhere i didn't want that anymore because i knew i didn't want to um write about new movies anymore Mm -hmm. um and a lot of that has to do with you know the the blockbuster landscape um but also my boyfriend's a filmmaker and the more time we spend together the more people i meet in the industry and the more conflicts of interest i have and so i just i can't work as a film critic anymore it's i'd have to recuse myself from too many things right your boyfriend is writing star wars he wrote and directed the star wars movie that's coming out in december yeah that's so cool yeah (laughs) um okay so sorry go back so I, i was trying to figure out what to do and i I realized that just as a media consumer, I was getting the most pleasure and I felt like the most information from podcasts. Um, And I just kind of started hearing in my head the sound of what a podcast that I could do would be like. Um, And, you know, I said This American Life Meets Hollywood Babylon. I mean, the idea of it was just that it would be like these stories um, that I would tell um, and that th- it would be this thing that was very composed um, with with a soundtrack, w- with an audioscape so that it sounded cinematic because every cinema podcast that I knew of at that point was not like that. They were people talking, like two people talking, or they were interview based, mm-hmm. which are great. I listened to tons of podcasts like that, but I just wanted to do something that sounded really different. Um, so I taught myself how to do it. How tedious did you find it to be? Uh, the first episode was really hard. I had this spring break from teaching. So I had, you know, a five-day week and then the two weekends on the the other side. And it took me the whole time to do the first episode, even though I had already written it. Um, just figuring out, you know, how microphones work. I had le- kind of learned some basic audio stuff in college. But, I mean, that was over 10 years earlier. Prob- pro- I mean, I basically learned how like microphones and pro tools work in 1998 and this was 2014 so um it was really tough and uh the editing was the worst part i was Mm -hmm. editing it in final cut which is a program that you know movies it's it is yeah but it was like what was free on my computer um and then eventually i i taught myself how to use garage band um but i like i got almost to the end of editing the episode the first time around. And then my computer crashed and mm. like the file got corrupted and I lost everything. And then actually like the, the, the program file, like once I did finish it and export it, like the program file got corrupted again. So I can't re-edit that first episode. And I used like tons of copyright music. So that's why the first episode of my podcast is the quote unquote lost episode. And that was about Kim Novak. Yeah. It is on the internet, but I, I can't, 
tell you where it is and I can't sell ads on it. Mm -hmm. When you have other people doing the voices, Mm -hmm. how do you find them? How do you figure out who you want? And then is that something that you record and then send to your editor? It's, it's kind of different every time. Um, I don't do it as often as I should or would like to because logistically it can be really difficult to, um, you know, just get the audio out of people because I, I don't, I, I don't work. I don't have access to like a professional recording studio where people can go. Um, and so, and then, you know, a lot of the people are really busy. Like, I mean, Taryn Killam is playing Bela Lugosi on my podcast right now. And he's like recording on his own, on his iPhone, like at night after he finishes shooting a movie mm-hmm. for the day. So it's, it's really great that people like, like the show enough that they're willing to do that. Um, but yeah, mostly people just record on their phones. Um, occasionally people will come to my house and record. Um, but when I was producing the podcast, um, when I was living in London, you know, I mean, that was all just people emailing me files. Mm-hmm. And do you reach out to them personally? Almost every time it's been somebody has like tweeted about the show, like liking the show or has emailed me about liking the show. And then I've been like, I've responded like, would you like to be on the show? And they say yes. And then I keep them in mind. And then I think like when I'm working on the next season, I find a part for them. Mm-hmm. Is there anyone who's turned you down? No. So who are some of the big names that have like tweeted about it or that reached out to you? Um, well, Patton Oswalt and Taryn Killam are both on the show this season. Um, uh, Adam Goldberg played David O. Selznick. Uh, and John Mulaney contacted me and wanted to be on the show. He actually did turn me down because he was too busy. But then I wanted him to play Mickey Rooney. And he was like, can I ask Dana Carvey to do it instead? Because he does a great Mickey Rooney. And I was like, yes, sure. Of course. And then, um, you know, Dana Carvey recorded on his phone and sent me the files. That's so, amazing. Yeah. Just la- Are you thinking what I'm thinking, Jeff? Just last night on the episode we recorded, we were talking about the super like old entertainment industry thing of if you can't do it, offering up someone else <laughs> and how that is a thing that used to happen pretty often. So when you're doing the research for yeah. an episode, what kind of sources do you use? Because I think I would be tempted to just start Googling and then I'd be like, but is this, is this, uh, you know, accurate? Yeah, I, I won't just quote a website unless um it you know that I know the author and I can figure out what their sources are um for the most part I try to figure out what the most um reliable biographies and books are and then that's where I'll start and then from there I'm able to kind of go to some of the original sources quoted in the books like I can go to the, the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences has an incredible library with a lot of production files um, and clippings files. So you can read microfiche of newspaper articles from the 30s and stuff like that. Is that something that is fun for you? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And has it always been? Have you always been a microfiche person? Um, I've always been really good at research. Yeah. I mean, that that was my favorite part of grad school was was doing research. I'm, you know, as I... I probably should have known before my experience teaching at Chapman. I'm, I have stage fright. I'm not good at at relating information to a group of people the way that professors need to. But I'm really good at the solitary aspect of being an academic. What way do you feel like is the way that professors need to? The reason I ask is because it's interesting to me that you would say you're not good at relating information to a group of people. And I understand you're saying specifically in the academic setting, mm-hmm. but it's like the your whole podcast, which is hugely popular, is relating information to a group of people. Yeah, but they're not in the room with me mm. and they can't talk back. 
they can't like ask me questions that I can't answer. Right. So what is it that you think a prof- uh, what skill set is required of a professor that you didn't have? I think that you have to be good on your feet um, and you have to just have conversational skills that I don't really have. <laughs> Are there certain Hollywood um, stories or facts that you thought were true for a long time that in your research you've learned, oh, I had it wrong? Yeah, definitely. Um, I think the first time that happened was the episode I did on Frances Farmer, which is the third or fourth episode I did. And I had learned about her from Kurt Cobain and Courtney Love talking about her in the 90s and saying like, oh, she was lobotomized and she was kicked out of Hollywood, you know, and she wasn't even crazy. Um, And then what I found out from doing that episode was that there's no actual evidence that she was lobotomized. Um, the reason why people think that she was was because a Scientologist wrote a biography of her that was basically like a thinly veiled screed against psychiatry. Mm. Is there one story that to you is, it's probably hard to choose, the most tragic? Well, I think the thing that made me the, definitely the the story that made me apply to grad school and and make me think that this was something that I could do, you know, for a living, like exploring these old Hollywood stories was the story of Judy Garland. I mean, I think probably like a lot of people my age, the first one of the first old movies I ever saw was The Wizard of Oz. It used to be on TV mm-hmm. every year at Thanksgiving. Um, and it wasn't until I was like maybe eight or nine that like I realized that Judy Garland like was not. 10 years old that she was like 18 years old and and then you know there's that was sort of the first inkling of like oh there's something going on here that is not what it seems mm-hmm. um and then in, as an undergraduate i saw the film a star is born and i read a book by ronald haver about the making of a star is born and the restoration that he spearheaded of it because uh the movie was originally produced as at 3 hours and um after its basically opening weekend the studio decided that they needed to sell more tickets and with without the director's approval they cut 40 minutes out of the movie and then they threw that 40 minutes away and so in the 80s this guy Ronald Haver who was the film curator at the LA County Museum of Art like he tried to reconstruct the movie and there's still footage of the movie that's missing that can't be found but he was able to reconstruct a lot of it Um, And I was just fascinated by like that story and the way that that movie reflected the actual tragedy of Judy Garland's life. Mm -hmm. Did you ever want to act? Yeah, I actually uh, I went to theater school as a basically a preteen and uh, I dropped out when I was about 15 because I was into punk rock and smoking pot. And (laughs) like I just didn't want to spend my afternoons like being taught about Stanislavski. (laughs) Uh, Do you ever think about it again? Um, I don't feel like I have what it takes to be a performer. Because I just think there's this sense that, like, you hear that of child stars. Like, if you're in L.A., eventually you just somehow end up in the industry. So I would yeah. think as someone who's so immersed in in the star-making machine. My mom really wanted me to do stuff. I mean, she put me in ballet when I was two. Um, she, t- like, sent me to acting classes when I was younger. Um. I was a really adorable child, and then I was a really awkward preteen and teenager, and people just stopped saying, like, you should be an actress, you know? Like, Mm -hmm. I just didn't have the look. Is your sister younger or older? She's seven years younger. Mm -hmm. She has the look, but she's not an actress. She's an accountant. Ah. Are you guys close? No. Not 
that there's like bad blood or anything. We're just not very close. Gotcha. It's a bit, that's a big age difference. Yeah. Let's take some questions that listeners sent in over Twitter and also Patreon. When we ask, we send them in. They're wondering how you have been. So thanks so much for answering these questions from our fans. Okay. Danny Chesney says, is there any Hollywood secret you know that is unmentionable or too scandalous, especially now? I think there's been a, a few questions that are sort of saying, especially now, I think in the light of the Weinstein scandal and right. like all the scandals. Yeah, I mean, no, I wouldn't. If I knew something, I, w- I would say it. Um, but yeah, people do really want me to comment on Harvey Weinstein all the time. And I've turned down many, many requests to do it because um, I think it's too easy to sort of say that he's part of this trajectory of, you know, rapey moguls, basically. <laughs> like, yes, Daryl Zanuck did this. Harry Cohn did this. Like Howard Hughes, who I just finished writing a book about, did this. But uh, the more you talk about the past, I think you're taking focus away from this person who's alive, who has not received punishment for his crimes, really, um, and his victims who still have stories to tell. Mm-hmm. Also, I almost would you do you agree that it it almost normalizes it? Yeah, to completely. just be like, oh, this is just a thing they do. Yeah, completely. And um, you know, I obviously I'm interested in the past and this kind of behavior. And I mean, it's the subtext of so many of my podcast episodes and so much of my work. Um, but I think that if you want to talk about Harvey Weinstein, you talk about Harvey Weinstein. You don't talk about Daryl Cohn or mm-hmm. Harry Cohn. Speaking of mistreatment of women, I was just listening to your Jane Mansfield episode. Mm-hmm. What is your take on whichever husband it was who said that she wanted to be beaten all the time? <laughs> um, I, you know, it's it's very difficult from the outside to know what's happening in somebody's sexual relationship. Um, and certainly there are people who enjoy violent sex. And certainly there are a lot of men who make the excuse that she wanted it mm-hmm. when she didn't want it. Right. Because that was one of the many sort of hard to listen to details of that was that mm-hmm. whatever job uh, it was where she it was found uh, breach of contract because she showed up with disfiguring bruises yeah. from her knees up and couldn't wear a miniskirt. Like, yeah. Oh. Like, what yeah, happened? Just, there's so many levels of just cringeworthy stuff going on there. I mean, my the first episode of the podcast about Kim Novak, you know, the, the kind of core of that story to me was that she was somebody that was told that her only value was the way that she looked. And she was also told that she didn't look good enough. Mm. And I think that that is the story of so many women in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. Wendy says, what's on your story wish list? I don't know. Um, Right now, I don't I don't have any ideas for new seasons. And as soon as I have an idea, I'll make it. Um, But there's nothing that I haven't done that I've wanted to do. Mm -hmm. How do you figure out what is going to be the next season? Usually I'll get just a small kernel of an idea. And it might be that I just happen on a movie on TCM or somebody tells me one anecdote or I come across like a line about something in a book about something else. And then I just start doing reading to see if there are enough stories there that would make it like worth my time to do a whole season. And usually I know 
like within a week or two of research, like whether I'm engaged in it enough to commit to it for, you know, the four or five months that it'll take me to do a season or if I like I'm not ready to do it. I mean, there's really only like one idea that I kind of like went down the road for a while and then I was like, I'm just not that interested in this right now, but I might go back to it in the future. What was it? It was an idea of basically doing a season about the three main actors in Rebel Without a Cause and like like starting from the beginning of their careers and like going to the end. So it would be James Dean, um, Natalie Wood and Sal Mineo, all of whom died in untimely ways. Um, But I don't I mean, if there's a good biography of James James Dean, I haven't found it. Mm -hmm. Like they're all kind of chintzy. You have to write it. Maybe. I mean, it re- it's really daunting, I think, like somebody like that who has been written about so much, but everything is kind of bad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's really difficult to know where to go. Like, who do you talk to? Like, how do you how do you do it differently and how do you do it better? And where are we in terms of uh, you finished a season, I but ju- the well, uploads are – sorry, yeah – Explain where you are in the seasons. <laughs> so this episode that or this season that I'm doing right now, Bela and Boris, um, it's going to be six episodes. And as we talk right now, the fourth episode came out today. But I've already finished writing and recording episode five and six. So they'll just come out over the next two weeks. And then I don't know when the next season's going to be. Um, I'm fortunate. People must be hound during the time <laughs> in between seasons. Your Twitter timeline must be yeah. crazy. I kind of wish people mentioned. would stop doing that, to be honest. because. Um, it's really hard to make this show, even though I do have help now. Um, I guess it's not as hard as it used to be, but it really is a full-time job. And I don't want to do it just like because people are asking for new episodes. Like It's only going to be good if I take the time to really commit to a story that I'm fascinated by. Mm-hmm. And it's just gonna, it just needs time. I read something that you said that I um, admired, which is that you really are just driven by what keeps your interest. Yeah. Do you do other people get into your head at all? Um, in terms of thinking like, oh, that th- people will find this interesting. People might not find this interesting. People don't like when that happens. They do like, you know, all because when you have a podcast, you get feedback about everything. Yeah. I think that um, I know that people really like stories about like sex and murder and <laughs> stuff like that. And um when I did this season called Dead Blondes, and that was a way of like, well, let's give the people what they want. Mm-hmm. And yeah, people liked that season. But to be honest, the season I'm doing right now about like these two like immigrants in 1930s mo- horror movies, like it's the biggest season we've ever done. It's more popular than, you know, any season has ever been. And I just did it because like I like those movies and I thought it would be fun to do something about 1930s horror movies around Halloween. Mm-hmm. So I think that. Um, even when like I think I'm giving people what they want, like sometimes I'm not. Sometimes it's better to just give them what I want. Mm-hmm. Are there any seasons that you like more than others? I don't know about that. I feel like what I'm, whatever I'm working on at the time is like my baby, and like that's the thing that I'm most fascinated by in the world. Mm-hmm. But there's, I mean, for me, the most fun is being able to learn about something I don't know very much about, and to be able to watch a lot of movies I've never seen before. All right. I have more questions to ask you from listeners. But first, I need to talk about something that makes a great gift for the holidays, and that is Omaha Steaks. We've mentioned this on the show a few times over the years, and it is probably one of the 
most popular things that we talk about on the show because if you give Omaha Steaks as a gift, the person who receives it will be so happy because it's so much. You get so much bang for your buck. It's like the perfect gift. Holidays are fast approaching. Order gifts for everyone on your list with the click of a mouse. Let me tell you about Omaha Steaks and how for only $49.99, you can get my family gift pack when you go to omahasteaks.com and enter my code ROSEN in the search bar. That's 75% off. Um, So it's great steak experiences at home, the most flavorful, tender, aged beef plus seafood, poultry, pork, veal, lamb, veggies, desserts. It's There's so much stuff. Right now, Omaha Steaks is giving an exclusive savings just to my listeners. Listen to everything that you will get for less than $50. Two filet mignons, two top sirloins, two boneless pork chops, four boneless chicken breasts, four kielbasa sausages, four burgers, four potatoes au gratin, four caramel apple tartlets, one Omaha steak seasoning packet, plus get four additional kielbasa sausages free. Go to omahasteaks.com, enter my code ROSEN in the search bar. So omahasteaks.com, enter my code ROSEN in the search bar. So right when you get there, search bar ROSEN, it'll pull this up and get 75% savings. It's the gift guaranteed to be a hit. Jeff, didn't you give people Omaha steaks one year? I gave it to a bunch of people last year and I was a hero. <laughs> people went crazy. Like I, if I got this exact same gift for the exact same people this year, they wouldn't think I was lazy. They would think I'm awesome again. <laughs> it's that good. People went crazy for yeah, it. Yeah. People go nuts for it. Um, okay. And what? Sorry. I've had it myself. Somebody got it and brought a bunch to a football game and it's amazing. It's yeah, great stuff. It is. West Anthony says, The blacklist era is such a rich vein of scumbaggery. Since America may be stampeding back that away, do you have any plans to return to it? Uh, No. I I did like 15 episodes about the blacklist. So um, it's possible that we would rerun those episodes on the feed. You know, I think that I think that there is going to be a pretty long hiatus between seasons in like 2018. So yeah, maybe we'll revisit them, like try to get people who haven't heard them to listen to them. But I feel like I pretty much exhausted that topic. Andrew Rostan says, what would Ms. Longworth podcast about on a regular basis apart from movies? Nothing. (laughs) People like, I mean, I like food. I like wine. Um, I'm a big baseball fan and people are always like, oh, you should do, you know, a podcast about baseball. But I just like to have things that are not work. Mm-hmm. Evil Toaster says, the double biography format of the last two seasons, Jean and Jane, Bella and Boris, Bella and Boris, is very compelling. Do you plan to use this format again? Yeah, I think it's good. Um, again, I don't have any plans for future seasons, but it's definitely, it's a fun format for me. It it really invites like thoughts that I wouldn't have just about the individual people. All right. And now a couple questions from Patreon. It was actually from my Patreon subscribers uh, that I booked you on the podcast because we have some crossover fans and I do um, an exclusive live stream with them. And I don't know if they organized ahead of time, but they so many (laughs) of them are obsessed with your podcast. I'm like, you have to get her on the podcast. You have to get her on the podcast. Yeah. So, okay. Lisa Lowry says, I am addicted to her show. It has sent me down many a rabbit hole. I've collected many books she uses as reference for the shows, which I sent her a photo of. (sighs) She had mentioned that a book club sort of idea may form at some point. I'm wondering when and how that would work. Also, where did her love of Hollywood's first century come from? 
Um, I don't know if we're going to do a book club where like everybody reads the same book at the same time. Um, but one thing we're working on right now, my assistant Lindsay and I, um, is like creating a page on the website with my sort of favorites of all the books that I've used as research and, um, you know, like some commentary about each book. So hopefully that'll be up in the next couple of months. And then if we did a book club, um, yeah, I'm not ha- sure how exactly it would work, but that would be a really fun thing to do. Do you have favorite historians? Yeah. Um, I I actually just got a chance to talk to him for the first time, but there's this guy, David Sten, who wrote two incredible books, one about Clara Bow and one about um, Jean Harlow. And he also um, made a documentary called, I, I want to say it's Girl... F- 47, it could be girl 27, but it's about Patricia Douglas, who is this woman who was hired to be like a dance, not even a dancer, just like a woman basically standing around in a costume at an MGM shareholders party and she was raped and she like wouldn't let it be covered up. She actually sued MGM and this is in the 1940s. Um, And so, yeah, he's really fascinating. He does really good work. Um, Who else do I like? I mean, one of the things about a lot of my subjects is that there will be, you know, four or five books about them. And like some of them are about like by all of the same people. Mm -hmm. Like there are some people who are like celebrity biographers. And I think that I know which ones like not to read. (laughs) And what's more interesting to me is um, when somebody like takes on a subject because they're passionate about it and they spend, you know, the 10 years doing research. Mm -hmm. Um, Like the, uh, the Barbara Stanwyck biography God, I can't remember the name of Victoria Wilson, I think she I mean, she's already published like a 700 page biography on Barbara Stanwyck. And that's the first half. And then the second half is going to come out later. Um, But that is really an incredible work of historical research. Mm -hmm. Um, I read something you said about sometimes the biographies can can like get too comprehensive for you and mm-hmm. you're more interested in the arc of someone's life yeah. when you are writing your books like the one that mm-hmm. you just wrote is that something that you're keeping in mind yeah definitely i mean when i say something's too comprehensive it's it's sort of like you know production details about minor movies that are n- like not even available to watch um and i think that i get more interested in things being narrativized for sure mm-hmm. All right. Colleen Marie says, who from the podcast, living or dead, would she want to interview in person? What would she want to ask them? Also, does she think the sexual politics that have come out recently are more intense than what went on in the past in Hollywood? Um, so like essay questions. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I don't really like to answer the like, who do you want to meet? Like, mm-hmm. who would you want to interview thing? It's just impossible. I mean, let's just say everybody and I would ask them everything. Um, <laughs> The sexual stuff, I think it's probably pretty similar to stuff that was going on. Um, I think that I think at Fox in the 1950s, when Daryl Zanuck was bringing starlets into his office and locking the door every day at 4 p.m., you couldn't say you didn't know what was going on. So I don't know if, you know, the people who are saying like, we had no idea Harvey Weinstein was doing this. I don't know if it's the same thing or different, but I know in the past there was an understanding that these things happened and you just didn't talk about it and you didn't make a big deal of it. I would have liked to think the industry has come a long way. I don't know if it has. I mean, I think in some ways it has. There are certainly more women who have power now. And at the same time, so much casting comes down to whether or not somebody like whether or not a woman is, you know, can I say fuckable? Sure. Effable. <laughs> um, yeah. It, I mean, it comes down to stuff like that every day. Is that something that has always bothered you? 
Well, I think it was just something that I accepted as being normal until, you know, pretty recently. I mean, like within the past 10 years, like really questioning, like, wait a minute, like, why aren't there anybody in movies that looks normal? Like, why do I feel like I look so bad? Like, what? Like, you know, like, why do I have Mm -hmm. such low self-esteem? Why don't I ever see anybody who looks like me, like in movies? Um, and it's this, it's not even just like beauty. It's like, why are there like in Los Angeles? It's an incredibly diverse place. You see, you see, and you meet people from all different cultures, all different races. Um, and you don't see that reflected in movies. Like, why do we have a single standard of beauty? Do you feel like, um, television is doing a better job than movies right now? I uh, certainly, you see, much more diverse casting in television. Um, and it, it, it's starting to, you know, change a little bit in movies. But um, I, like, I just I really don't want to see any more movies like where, you know, Jennifer Aniston, like, isn't wearing makeup, like to play somebody who's like supposedly a hag, you know. <laughs> um, and then I, it's the fact that that kind of thing is considered good acting you know Mm -hmm. that's the thing that you win oscars for you mean the oh she's so brave yeah she wore brown contacts over her natural yeah aqua eyes yeah and i mean that just that whole process of like an actress being like i have to show that i have range and that i'm not just a sex pot and so i have to do a movie where i you know like dress down or i'm like you know made under and that i will be rewarded for that is another example of just this, you know, the priorities being really skewed. What did you think of Wonder Woman? I'm not a fan. <laughs> I think it's great that, you know, a woman directed a movie that did so well, and I wish it was a better movie. Mm-hmm. Let's do Just Me or Everyone. But first, I want to tell you guys, I did sort of mention this before. I'm on Patreon. Check it out. Uh, you get bonus episodes every month. You get access. You can get ac- different w- reward levels. So you can get access to the live stream that I mentioned. There's a level where you get merch in the mail. Patreon.com slash Allison Rosen is where you go for that. And if you like what you're hearing, subscribe, tell a friend, iTunes.com slash Allison Rosen. Um, and also please rate and review the show. That helps us out. Okay. Let's do just sometimes I ponder on something I have thought or done. Is it just me or everyone? Okay, so this is where people write in with things they think or they do and they wonder, is it just me or does everyone do this? And then we say whether we we relate or not. Okay. Sebastian Stoker says, I make a concerted effort to give my cats a variety of flavors of canned food, even though they supposedly don't care. Just me or everyone. I don't have pets. But that sounds really nice. <laughs> yeah. With Wendy, we currently are alternating between two different flavors of food. One is beef and one is turkey. And she definitely prefers the turkey. <laughs> but occasionally, but like like last night, Daniel made her the beef. And I was like, that's not going to go well. And she didn't eat that much of it, even though he now takes out a grater and takes a little treat and grates a treat on top. She wow. has him trained. Oh. <laughs> Jeff? Do you alternate your cat's food? Just you. Nope. They get the same kibble for years, every day, day after day, and they seem to love it. James Leroy Wilson says, always wondering if I'm using more hot water washing and rinsing my dishes by hand than a machine dishwasher would. Um, I don't wonder about this. <laughs> I just don't like to wash by hand, so I try to avoid it. Yeah. Um, I, I, I think it's just him. 
Jeff, do you have a dishwasher? I I do. It's me. <laughs> so I've thought about this a little bit, but uh, not much because I don't really have an option. Right. And if I had a machine, I don't think I'd be thinking about it. I'd yeah. just be putting stuff in the machine. Patrick Schumar says, whenever I take my wife's car and get home, I think for a second where she went before remembering I'm driving her car. This, I would... This is not the same, but oftentimes, back when I had a car where I didn't have keyless entry, I would be driving and then I would suddenly worry, oh no, where are my keys? <laughs> that feels similar. Yeah. Uh, B. Slammon says, seems the apostrophe rules for plural and singular nouns have gone away, i.e. Allison's pod rules other people's, people's with the apostrophe after the S, pods, drools. <laughs> I like that you're bringing that back. Um, I don't think the rules have gone away. I just think with so much social media, people are relaxed or don't know the rules. Yeah, I think that you kind of have to throw out punctuation and grammar rules on Twitter often to just like make the character thing. So. Right. Now, what I had learned is that if it's... If, the, if you're making it possessive and the word ends in s if it's singular you do s apostrophe s like um if like what's a name that ends in like Lu elvis's yeah elvis like yeah elvis's guitars mm -hmm. would be El elvis apostrophe s guitars however i've t i've you know put that in various podcast titles specifically about elvis's guitars because <laughs> that's my specialty uh and people have written in to be like, it should just be Elvis apostrophe. And I think they're wrong. I, Why do people write in to tell you that kind of thing? That's, that's horrible. Pe people's favorite thing to let you know. Oh my God. I'm, <laughs> I'm going to write in to tell people that they shouldn't write in about that. <laughs> oh my God. I, I actually researched this because I wrote an article about Elvis's, Elvis's honeymoon hideaway. Mm. And I wanted to get it right. And what my research said that Either one is correct. Oh, well, there you go. I remember- As long as you're consistent throughout right. the article or whatever the style okay. guide of the magazine is. I just think that punctuation police are the worst. Yeah. I remember my husband telling me, this was not his own research. It was like an article he read, but it's like the way to get the most comments on a blog post <laughs> is to misspell a word. Oh my God. <laughs> okay. And I feel like a lot of that is just autocorrect. So people are typing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think if the autocorrect didn't exist and people were forced to dis to have to think and decide about how to punctuate all that, they would get it right more often than not. But I feel like a big portion of that's autocorrect. But also people don't know. Yeah. But yeah, the the punctuation police, it's like, it is the low hanging fruit. It's like complaining about traffic. It's just... I don't know. How much time do they have? Yeah enough <laughs> ed morris says i love stepping on and crushing acorns when i am walking just me or everyone do we have acorns out here am I, have i been passing by acorns and i wasn't aware they were they are acorns i don't think i've ever seen acorns out here acorns feel east coast to me yeah yeah i don't know i try not to step on things that'll get stuck on my shoe though yeah i feel like because what i'm envisioning is the bottom of your shoe coated in paste and seeds mm -hmm. at like some kind of extra sticky raspberry jam so i so i'm gonna say it's just you <laughs> with your indestructible shoes unless acorns crack in a very satisfying way that i'm unaware i'm gonna need more info i thought they were pretty sturdy i think you would have a hard time cracking them but i could be wrong i wonder if we coated the floor with walnuts what would happen <laughs> i mean i think people would you'd fall yeah they're pretty big yeah, you they're could slip and fall. but i wonder if you could crush them 
and then eat the walnut be a weird it'd be a weird way to eat walnuts yeah (laughs) (laughs) the great one says didn't see my friends halloween costumes until a few days into november because of the instagram news feed algorithm Ugh. yeah not just him definitely me too I'm not into it. No. I liked when it just offered up photos in the order in which they were posted versus this new... Are you on Instagram at all anymore, Jeff? No, not really. Yeah. Now it'll be like something that was posted you know, an hour ago, and then you'll see a post. And I'll think to myself, they posted this again. And then I yeah. look and it's like, no, it was posted 20 hours ago. Yeah. Facebook does this now. They They let you switch it, but the default option is whatever their algorithm of what they think is interesting is so yeah you'll see a bunch of posts from one person and then you look and it's like oh this was over three days yeah and i do instagram stories i've never done the instagram live thing i use other things for live streaming but i was reading something that was saying you know when you go live we'll notify some of your followers (laughs) just just some though (laughs) i don't get it well yeah instagram's doing a thing where they they portion out how your posts go out, but then also how your likes come in. So if you post something, they'll they'll spread out the likes that you receive back from that over time to keep you on the mm, app. Uh, yeah, Twitter, I guess, does that too, so that it, you right. watch it in real time. Like, ding, 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 ding. Well, if there's any way to switch the Instagram algorithm back that anybody knows, like, please let me know. Yeah, please let us know. John Schember says, sorry, I just, disagree with this one on the face of it and i haven't even read it yet i'm getting upset out of all generic hand soaps the nerve of this guy the industrial pink slime at gas stations is my favorite hashtag ghostbusters 2 the industrial like, pink slime is the worst like the powder stuff no i think i think he means the like it's like pink snot right that, like gloops into right. your hand i think that's what he's talking about but you know i don't i guess i just don't have an opinion about that kind of thing but i'm i'm just always happy when there is soap in yeah a, in a bathroom that i'm worried is dirty true but i just find the pink slime to be some of the grossest soap option there is yeah jeff soap opinions yeah i just i never thought about it but Every time I get the powder one, I think, mm. this isn't a soap dispenser. This is a time machine. <laughs> like, going to 1962 that I'm getting that pink powder. Also, if there isn't a paper towel dispenser, it's just that towel roll oh, thing. Oh, yeah. God. No, I'll dry my hands on my shirt. And yeah. And I'll use my shirt to open the, the door with. Yeah. Oh, here's one. How about those new uh, hand dryers that you put your hands in? That are like or, 3G. Yeah. And, <laughs> and they're so loud. It's unbelievable. So. Yeah. I guess in theory you're supposed to be saving the environment by not chopping down trees or whatever, but it uses electricity and it has to be medically OSHA too loud for human ears. Yeah. It's deafeningly loud. Yeah. And your hands look like they're on a roller coaster when you put yeah. like your hands are <laughs> the skin gets all pushed back. Um yes, I don't have feelings pro or con those, although I'm surprised they work, unlike the other ones that the hand dryers that are really mm-hmm. really don't work. Yeah. But I was in a public restroom with Elliot, my son, and he was very freaked out by the sound of that dryer. Yeah. So uh, now I don't like it anymore. Lee Bruns says, I feel a little guilty when I see a new business open, then go out of business without having ever stepped foot in the door. I I don't. I'm just always like, it's on them. (laughs) Even though I guess I am part of the problem. Do you guys have this feeling? 
Sometimes I feel like, oh, I never even got a chance to go to that restaurant and I always meant to, mm-hmm. but I don't feel like it's my fault. I, I don't feel like it's my fault, but I get bummed out when I see businesses disappear, mm-hmm. especially on a street, a boulevard where there are a bunch of businesses, mm-hmm. especially if I know it hasn't lasted long because I know every one of those businesses, that's like somebody's dream and they got the startup money and made up a business plan and they were so excited for people to walk through the door and then it's just gone. It, it bumps me out. Yeah. What's weird is when, and I can just think of examples in Orange County, not in LA, even though I know there are some, when a certain business location, whatever business opens up in there seems to fail. It's oh, like yeah. It seems like to be something about the specific building or something. That's the thing. On, on my street, there are a couple stores that I've been there for a long time and nothing has ever done well there. Mm. And I had a friend that lost her retail space or she wanted to change her retail space. And when she was looking for a space, it was in Burbank. She would go look at the space and then she would talk to the neighbors and say, oh, what used to be here? How long was it here? And if there wasn't something that had been there for a long time, she wouldn't take it. And, Smart. and she couldn't quantify what the problem was, but she said, it's a thing. If if there's been 10 businesses there in 10 years, you don't want that space. There's something wrong with it. It could be something like maybe you just don't get a lot of walk up. Walk up customers. or the parking's inconvenient or it's kind of on the edge of what people consider to be a shopping area. But or it's haunted. Or haunted. <laughs> bad juju. You can't. Yeah, you can't. Or bad mojo. Right. <laughs> oh my God! When the juju and the mojo yeah. together aren't working for you, yeah, you think some some people yeah. think one cancels the other one out, right? No, no. <laughs> no they exp- they they yeah. potentiate, yep. and suddenly you have a real bad situation on your hands. And lastly, AJ Johnson says having the read receipt off, but still won't open text from people I don't want to talk to because what if they just know? I have done things like that where like i'll see a text come in from someone that i don't want to deal with and it's usually it's almost like the spam version of a text where it's like oh now businesses are just texting me about stuff um but actually a human being there and so i just won't read it i'll just put it off and i'll read it later i don't think it's because i feel like they'll just know though but it's like once i read it then i'm gonna feel the pressure to respond yeah, I feel the same way. Like, I'll often do that when, like, somebody sends me a text about, like, wanting to make plans and, like, I don't want to make plans mm-hmm. or, like, I know that I'm too busy or I'm not going to be around that day. Like, I'll just – I just don't want to deal with it. So I, like, won't look at it for yeah. two days. I'm actually really bad. About, if I don't respond to someone right away, it is because I can't figure it out. It's not – I think that when you send a, a something to someone and they don't respond, you assume – I. I assume <laughs> that they're just like, fuck that, you know, or there's some mm. super, super negative reaction or like I didn't even rate a reaction. However, I know for me, when I don't respond, it's just because I'm like, maybe that day would work, but I'm not sure yet. And I have got right. to figure something out when really I should, I, the right thing to do, I think everyone would appreciate if you just would respond and be like, hey, I think so. Let me check and get back to you. Yeah, I do that sometimes, but every time I do it, I feel uncool. Like which one? When every time you get back, like, every to time I like write back fashion. and I'm like, like I have to check and see. Let me get back to you. I feel like nobody ever responds to that text, and so like I feel like it's an extraneous text that they mm. didn't want. Like they just want the information about like, yeah, I can do six or like, right. no, it's not going to work. And so I j- I'll do it sometimes, but then I'm like, oh god, why did I do that? It's oh, so see, uncool. I always appreciate. I always appreciate the I'm checking text because <laughs> it makes me feel like, oh, I'm not invisible. 
Right. And maybe you saying, wait, I'm checking. And then you don't hear back from them. Then they think, well, I don't want to text them back. Okay. Because then that's an extra extraneous test. And everybody's doing this standoff with each other. Right. Like, do I thank you for your thank you? Right. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Karina, it was so nice having you on the show. Thank you. I had fun. Me too. Tell everyone where to go to find you and your podcast and anything else you would like to plug. Uh, The podcast is called You Must Remember This. It's on iTunes and Overcast and Spotify and all the places. And it's also at youmustrememberthispodcast.com. And I'm on Instagram and Twitter. Nowhere else, though. Karina without a T. No T. Not Katrina. Is that a thing you get all the time? Oh, yeah. I mean, like people will respond like at Karina Longworth on Twitter and then they'll be like, hi, Katrina. (laughs) (laughs) Jeff, where can we find you? You can find me on Facebook and Twitter at Colonel Jeff Fox. And follow me on Twitter at Allison Rosen. Follow me on Instagram at Allison Rosen. And follow the show's Twitter feed at A-R-I-Y-N-B-F. Thank you so much for being on the show. Listeners, thank you for listening. I love you. Goodbye. Hey, do you know about the Allison Rosen Show? We had a good time, but now we gotta go. Yeah, Allison Rosen.